Mm. Jason, if you were a child's toy, <laughs> <laughs> what would you be and why? <laughs> Action man. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I think it's going to have to be Lego. Lego, yeah. It's just going to have to be Lego. But why would I be Lego? Other than the fact that I love Lego. Which is obviously appropriate, yeah. Complex multiple pieces. Yes, something like that. I think all of those things at once, actually. Um, yes, deeply immature and yet quite sophisticated. Thank you. You can you can sit down for a minute. Oh, good. <laughs> Great talk. Yeah. Good. Excellent. We're, we're, we're going to have a look together at Acts 14. I'm going to read from Acts 14. I'm going to begin at verse 8 and then go through to verse 28. It's on page 724 of Jason's Bible. Is this yours? Yeah, you can have that. Thanks, Jason's Bible. Um, Acts 14, beginning to read at verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lysonian, The gods have come down to us in the likenesses of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derb. When they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every city, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord, in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for Jason now as he comes to speak to us. Uh, we pray that as we look at this topic together, that you would be with us, that you would bless him, uh, bless his words uh, to us, that we might learn together uh, and know you and love you more. Amen. Amen. Uh, thanks. Uh, I wanted that piece of scripture read out because uh, as we come to this topic, I wanted to uh, help us to understand that if even Paul, with the power of miracles and all his wisdom, couldn't persuade people to see sense, you've got no hope. Uh, so uh, uh, we'll start with the, uh, the verse at the top of the handout. Has everyone got a handout? Okay. Um, I've only got one left, if you can, uh, to the back there. Okay. Sorry if you don't have a handout. Uh, it will all be on the screen, um, so you can take notes. Uh, so uh, I wanted to start with this verse. Um, after Dave yesterday, I was tempted to read it in Klingon, but I thought I'd go with the original Dower Presbyterian from Scotland. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after the wind. One of my favourite verses. Um, <laughs> I've been asked to speak on contextualisation. That's the only joke, uh, so I hope you enjoy it. Um, I've been asked to speak on contextualisation uh, within uh, post-Christian Britain. Um, just to point out that we are in post-Christian Britain, um, here's the state of play um, on the screen. Uh, 30 years ago, uh, even people who weren't Christian would pretend that they were in some sense. They had some kind of background in the Christian things, and they would pretend in a survey that they were. Uh, in fact, while attendance at the Church of England uh, churches was in the mil a few millions, tens of millions would say that they were C of E. Now, however, uh, the majority are so boldly atheist, they will say so. Less than a million go to church in the C of E uh, in a population of 60 million. We are now in a minority, and we need to get that sense of being in a minority, being Paul in Lystra and Derby. Um, we would have been able to appeal to the 66% who would have called themselves Christian 30 years ago, well, it's 41% now. And those are just the ones that claim to be Christian. Uh, what I want to do, therefore, through this, uh, this uh, talk is examine the state of our culture and to look at the hidden assumptions that are part of our culture. Um, because these assumptions are indoctrinating both those people we are trying to reach and those people who have already been reached with the gospel. So yesterday, um, Dave was pointing out that the Missio Dei is about growing worshippers who can be brought into that intra-Trinitarian glory and love. To be brought into that, to love and glorify the Lord uh, with him. But, of course... That means both evangelism and discipleship, crudely put. It means bringing people into that uh, loving relationship of worship and helping those who are beginning in that relationship to grow into that relationship. It's evangelism and it's discipleship as we grow worshippers. 
And that means if we're going to do our jobs properly as Christians or as pastors, uh, and hopefully both if you're a pastor, um, we are going to have to contextualize. We're going to have to adapt to the culture around us. Uh, There's two reasons for doing that. Um, The first is so we can tackle false faith, what Tim Keller calls a defeater belief. Those things that we hold to be so instinctively true, uh, those idols and ideals that we believe in so passionately that when the gospel comes against it, we instinctively react against the gospel and we say, well, I know that this is true, so that can't be true. Those are defeater beliefs. They're clashing with the culture. They defeat the gospel in the mind of the hearer. And then the second is uh, the nagging doubts, the itches where we want to scratch. Uh, Those questions that people have, uh, like Paul in Acts 17, uh, where they know that they've not found the true God and they've got an idol to the unknown God, just in case they've missed one. And Paul says, I want to scratch that itch. People around us are in places searching for answers. And do we know where our culture itches that we can scratch and say, I've got something to tell you about? So that's, a, that's where we are. Those are the reasons we're going to be looking at contextualization, uh, to look at defeated beliefs and nagging doubts. Right, where are we at the moment in post-Christian Britain? And this is where I want to draw your eyes to the article that you've been given. (coughs) This is something that came up a few months ago that really got me thinking uh, as we came into this, uh, as I started prepping this. If you've not read it, it's worth having a look at it later because it covers a lot of what I want to say uh, this morning. Um, It covers the confusion in our world, uh, the apathy, the cartload of comedy and humour that has slapped over everything to cover the gaping chasm in our souls. Um, And uh, I hope you'll read that later. Um, what David Mitchell is reacting to, and in the article he's rather brilliantly reacting to it, is something that Neil McGregor said, a former director of the British Museum. He's got a series on uh, Radio 4 at the moment called Living with the Gods. And at the start of this series, he said that in Western Europe, and in the UK especially, we are the first society in history without an agreed narrative. We do not have a shared story of our place in the world. That's his contention. We have no shared religion, no shared belief about who we are and why we're here. It's the question, are we? Are we the first society where that's true, where we have no shared narrative? And here's my thesis uh, that I'd like to share with you and suggest. And it's... uh, No and yes. Um, No and yes. We do have an agreed narrative. It's rubbish, but we do have one, and it's called nihilism. I'll explain nihilism in a moment. I'll highlight why it's such a uh, powerful defeater belief. It seems like it should be empty. It is incredibly powerful. 
um, even though it seems to be hopeless and pointless. Um, and then, well, yes, we do have an agreed narrative. Uh, nihilism, but, but yes, we don't have an, an agreed narrative because we have a whole bunch of narratives. Existentialism. We, one of the results of nihilism is inevitably a whole bunch of different narratives that we all personally hold to. Uh, existential. Uh, so David Mitchell calls it a cobbling together, uh, amateurish cobbling together of beliefs uh, into something that barely works, but is satisfying enough. So each narrative uh, that each person has uh, competes for the uh, worst idea ever, but we hold on to it, and that's ex existentialism. Uh, the result is that to engage with our culture, we cannot learn about one religion or one philosophy. We need to engage with a whole spectrum of different ideas and beliefs, and the, all of them competing, inconsistent um, uh, ideas that will be operating within our society, and often within the same individual at the same time. Uh, what I'm going to do then is offer what I think are the main lenses. I've grouped them into five because I, like David, are, th are thoroughly reformed. Um, I've also instinctively and by accident put them in a chiastic structure. <laughs> I, I couldn't help it. And because I am so reformed, I've also removed most of the jokes. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> Um, you'll note as we go through the lenses, each one, uh, each narrative kind of links into the other and informs the other lenses. You'll see there's massive overlap as we go through. You may also think of other lenses uh, that may inform our UK culture, but these are the ones that I've chosen, are the ones that I think are most formative. Um, but I want to highlight one of the central problems of our age, uh, these views do not come through reasoned study. You will not be able to tackle them with logic. They're held on an emotional, not an intellectual basis, which makes them very hard to tackle, deeply entrenched, and inconsistent. Let me say that again. You will not tackle the views of our age through careful, reasoned study. They're held on an inconsistent and emotional basis. Not only will you need to tackle them logically, but you'll need to beat them and replace them with better stories. Let's move on. Lens number one, nihilism. Uh, nihilism is a way of explaining the world and its meaning. It's been around for uh, about 300 years, but its uh, most famous proponent is Friedrich Nietzsche uh, in the late 1800s. I'm going to show you how nihilism works, all being well. Uh, let me cue up the clip for you. This is from a cartoon called Futurama. Um, Futurama is a massively underrated cartoon. It is one of the only cartoon, no, it's the only cartoon which a whole episode spawned a mathematical proof for, which is published in academia. It is known, the theorem is known uh, by the episode. Uh, 
It's written by mathematics PhDs, the whole thing. Um, so it's rather fantastic. Uh, there we are, advert over. Futurama, here's the story so far in this episode. The uh, professor, Farnsworth, has invented a time machine. There's only one problem with the time machine. It can only go forward. Okay? So they all go for a test run. Bender the robot and Fry the idiot. Go with the professor for a test run in the time machine. But they accidentally move too far forward. And then they get into a fight about who's got control over the lever. And before you know it, they've ended up at the end of the world. We can't play that episode of Futurama on this recording because of copyright. I expect if you Google, you could find it on YouTube. That's nihilism. Um, we saw a similar outlook on the universe last year when Dave showed us that clip with Philomena Kunk and Professor Brian Cox. Um, the end, we came from nothing. It was just an accident. We evolved, it's just an accident, and then one day the universe will die. Cheery stuff, kind of appeals. Um, so uh, nihilism, you may know, is the foundation for existentialism, is where postmodernism comes from, is where humanism comes from. All of them have their roots in this one idea. There is no God, there's no God telling you what to do, the Big Bang was a lovely accident. Evolution is splendid and pretty, but ultimately meaningless. Life has no intrinsic meaning or value or purpose. One day you will die, which isn't good or bad. It just is. And then one day the universe will die, which doesn't mean anything. Or to quote Doctor Strange, uh, the, cartoon, the, uh, the film character, not the uh, New Testament lecturer. Um, <laughs> we are made of matter and nothing more. We're just another tiny momentary speck in an indifferent universe. Now, you might know that Doctor Strange doesn't end that, uh, in that place, but it is where the movie starts. It's, nihilism is a natural consequence of an accidental, godless universe. There's no meaning, no point. No one telling you what Nietzsche called big facts. There's no one there to say, this is how it is. This is what you must do. There's no ethics, no reasons, no meanings, no purposes. Now, to my ears, that sounds appalling and empty and very depressing, but it is also incredibly liberating. You are free to do whatever the heck you want in nihilism. Everything is just fine. It's natural. It's just the way it is. Do what you like. And it doesn't matter. Because in the end, it all ends up with the protons decaying and it's all dead. doesn't matter what you do. So nihilism on one uh, level uh, as a foundation is quite appealing. But most people don't know, uh, don't live by nihilism, as you probably know. Even Nietzsche did not live by nihilism. Uh, his hope was that something would come out of the fires of nihilism. And so the natural consequence is existentialism. You impose a meaning on the meaningless universe. You impose your own meaning on your own meaningless life. 
And that brings us to the second lens. And I want to bring you to the first kind of existentialism I want to look at, uh, existentialism, and that's secular humanism. Secular humanism. Now, I wasn't going to include this because I, I thought secular humanism is a spent force. The new atheists, they're kind of, it was a flash in the pan. They're not a big deal. Uh, and you may be tempted, as you think of secular humanism, to think of those new atheists, the ones that live by the credo, I don't believe in God and I hate his guts. Those ones. But actually, uh, like nihilism, it's not the hard edge of secular humanism that everyone is affected by. It's the soft edge that everyone gets and we're all affected by it. Um, so what the person we meet in daily life has been drip, drip fed secular humanism in a way that I wasn't fully appreciative of before I came to this. Again, I want to take you to Doctor Strange, the movie, just as an example. As we follow Doctor Strange's story arc, as he moves from neuroscientist to uh, sorcerer supreme, as he will be in the next few uh, series, um, he moves from a bitter, selfish nihilist to a person that tries to do something better for the world around him by being a, a sorcerer. Now, the movie looks like magic and fantasy, but it is actually rooted in a very naturalistic, comprehensible uh, rational universe. It introduces, as well, something deeper, an eternal battle between good and evil. Into the meaningless universe, there's suddenly meaning, good and evil. And at the emotional pinnacle of the movie, at the death of the guru uh, and the ascent of the new hero, uh, the ancient one tells Doctor Strange that he's failed to learn the simplest and most basic lesson of all. It's not about you. And from here on, Doctor Strange becomes a selfless, altruistic humanist. The kind of person he was always destined to be. We'll pick this up in, in another uh, few minutes. The hero he was always destined to be, who he naturally is, now starts to come out. And you'll note within the story, it doesn't come to you rationally. Oh, it's not about you because this is the real meaning behind this nihilistic universe. It doesn't come rationally. It comes emotionally in the story. A pointless universe where you're called to live a higher, better life. Uh, it comes through storytelling. And as far as I can see, it underpoints every Marvel movie in the past decade. It also underpins every Star Trek movie ever made because, of course, the creator Gene Roddenberry was a humanist. The last time I saw a movie which had a different view, once that genuinely advocated something beyond this life, um, was Lord of the Rings, written by a Catholic. I think you could argue Harry Potter has uh, an incomprehensible, irrational element to it. But there's no afterlife, there's no God. Hollywood churns out movies where people do the right thing for no discernible reason. 
Uh, they don't have a faith that they live by or a logical reason for their behavior. But they always do the right thing. That is secular humanism. And the general population drinks from this well on a daily basis. They're never given the logical reasons why they would want to be a secular humanist. They just adopt it on a gut level. We live in a meaningless universe and I've got to do the right thing in it. That's all they know. And they do that through entertainment and stories. Happy? Everyone with me? Great. Okay, third lens. Here's the chiastic central point. Radical individualism. At this point, I must plug uh, Glyn Harrison's book, A Better Story. It's about human sexuality, um, fundamentally. But before he gets there, he does some rather brilliant cultural analysis. And uh, just about everything I'm going to say now is uh, straight out of this book. So if this ever gets published, I will be done for plagiarism, and that's fair. Uh, okay, uh, three points from his book that I want to highlight. Um, first, how our culture has a shared single story, a narrative about becoming who you really are, self-actualization. Uh, second, how that narrative ends up being thousands of narratives uh, competing in a culture war. And then finally, how the result is millions of lost, lonely souls. Do you need me to repeat that? Or has everyone got it on their sheet? You're happy. Great. Okay. So first, a single shared narrative of self-actualization. Um, what Harrison does is he charts his way through all uh, history uh, since the sexual freedom movement of the 1960s uh, and through to the 70s to spot the moment when simple anti-authoritarian feeling and pop psychology merge uh, to bring us this narrative that you must become your true self. Uh, he says, self-expression was transformed from a mindless act of defiance into a moral quest. Freedom for the sake of authenticity and becoming your true self. He's very quotable in this book, I have to say. Uh, but I, I think that's very helpful. Self-expression was transformed from a mindless act of defiance into a moral quest. Freedom for the sake of authenticity and becoming your true self. Being who you truly are deep down inside. If you were a ballet dancer in a mining town, if you were a gay lawyer in a straight world, if you were a pig that wanted to herd sheep, being who you felt you were is what you must be. It's what it is to be truly human. It is an unquestionable, absolute good to be true to yourself. An unquestionable and absolute good. Again, it presented in story form as a heroic quest to be who you truly are. Not to be victimised by the authorities above you. 
And in the best stories, the authority figures realize what they got wrong. Oh, it really can herd sheep. We were wrong. Let's give the pig a round of applause. You're a tiny bunny that wants to be a cop? Anyone can be anything in Zootropolis. You're a gay lawyer in a straight world? You teach them a lesson. You want to learn a girly dance? You show your macho dad what being true to yourself is. For copyright reasons, we are unable to include Jason's enthusiastic rendition of The Greatest Love of All by Whitney Houston. You're welcome. Uh, Never mind that Jesus says the greatest love of all is, of course, love of God and love of your neighbour. Whitney Houston says, you ought to learn to love yourself first. Being who you truly are is more important than love of God and love of neighbour. Jesus is just swept aside by this narrative. And we've just drunk from that uh, so heavily. So feelings over facts uh, is the other aspect of this uh, self, uh, this single narrative. Feelings over facts. And I want to draw your attention to uh, this book. Uh, the Righteous Mind uh, by Jonathan Haidt. I think I pronounced that correctly. Um, Harrison, uh, in his book, he turns to research like this, uh, The Righteous Mind, to show how our ethics and our reasoning has become feeling-based. Um, Our culture, as it moves to a liberal and individualistic and libertarian politic, uh, becomes more uh, individualistic, uh, more feeling-based, more personal. Um, The research and the findings in it are fascinating, um, and I do recommend both Harrison's uh, pricey of it in his book and uh, the book itself. The short version is this. People, uh, sorry, people today um, base their ethical thinking on individual senses of fairness and liberty rather than on society or authorities' teaching. Okay? Will I say that again? Okay. The short version is this. People base their ethical thinking on individual sense of fairness and liberty rather than society or authorities' teachings, okay? Which puts us at an immediate disadvantage. We're an authority figure. And the gay rights campaigner or the feminist or whatever that has a personal story about how they feel uh, trumps us easily. Um, The second point would be we go with gut feelings. And then we rationalize it afterwards. And that is a massive, I found that massively helpful uh, to see how people actually think. You see it all the time. Uh, It's everywhere. People go with a gut feeling and then rationalize it afterwards. Or as Cranmer put it, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Is that not biblical? Uh, That leads uh, to what uh, 
uh, Harrison calls the war on reality. Objective facts like gender, your ability to hold a tune in front of Simon Cowell, objective facts go out the window. Uh, I feel like a girl. I must be a girl. I believe I can sing. I can sing. And you, Simon Cowell, I don't care how many platinum, uh, platinum albums you've got. Can you not see what a real star I am? Feelings trump facts uh, in this uh, in this new reality, because my authentic feelings are what really count. Uh, so that's to say, uh, when someone in a dog collar tells you that you're wrong, uh, you're on a, they're on a hiding to nothing. Uh, they're an authority figure, so they're obviously wrong. And if they're denying what you feel to be true, they must be wrong. So we're going to have to start appealing to how people feel uh, and uh, scratching at that cognitive dissonance. I feel this way, but everything I'm seeing and hearing when I sing into the microphone tells me I, I don't, I'm wrong. We've got to start scratching at that cognitive dissonance between feelings and experience. Any questions? I just want to pause there. We're at the kind of halfway point. Um. Is that why on the news, on the television, they so often interview individuals to get their own experience of what the news is always about? It drives me mad. I now understand yes. why they do that. Um, it's part of the postmodern, anti-authoritarian yeah. yeah. um, individual. Uh, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. We don't like history from the top, kings and queens. We want to know how did peasants experience that at the ground level. Uh, yeah, that, uh, that's a brilliant observation. It's not always wrong. No, no, not, not always wrong, it's, but it's, it, it is helpful. When you say scratch at that disparity, do you mean get them to start questioning whether those feelings yes. Yes, it's about tackling those, uh, the, Tim Keller talks about doubting your doubts, causing people to doubt, that I think about their doubts and chew it over, start to say, yeah, we have got a, an idol to an unknown God. I, I don't know everything. I, I do want to know more. Yeah. Just an observation, I don't know if you agree with it, that uh, there is an increasing um, demand on people in authority, political figures, to be brought to account in moral issues, uh, which we wouldn't argue with. Uh, but those with softer power in celebrity culture, uh, who perhaps are, have a more, 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 more sway as role models, are never called to account for their moral failings. But sometimes they're celebrated. Uh, That's the, we'll come to that in the fifth <coughs> lens, but uh, I, I don't know if we're going to manage to tackle why that should be the case. Uh, yeah, I guess what we're doing there, th you're, yeah, you're right. We're linking this lens, um, which is anti-authoritarian and libertarian, with uh, the fifth lens, which is going to be about uh, plausibility. Um, let's come back to that. that. That's a good observation. Thank you. 
Okay, um, let's crack on then. Radical individualism, therefore, starts with the story of how to be truly human. You've got to ignore everyone else and look inside. What does your heart say? Um, and if it says sin, well, go for it. Because that's, that's the real you. If you turn out to be a mass murderer, well, at least you were true to yourself. And that's very important. Uh, right, okay, moving on. A thousand competing narratives. A thousand competing narratives. And I've given this the subtitle, The Will to Power. Um, it should be no surprise that in a world where there are no big facts, just personal opinion, you end up with a pluralism. No big facts, loads of opinions, loads of different opinions, you get pluralism. Here's the question then. Why does it not feel like thousands of people just living their own lives, their own way of keeping themselves to themselves? Why does it not feel like we live in a truly plural culture where you can be a Christian, you can be gay, you can be an atheist, you can be a Hindu? Why does it not feel, why does it feel like people don't allow that? Why is it, in essence, a competitive pluralism? And this comes back to Nietzsche. Nietzsche said, will to power. The problem is the will to power. Harrison takes this idea to argue that some people will have such a strong desire to assert their stories over other people's stories, other people's versions of the truth, that they will strive to have power over each other and others will let them do that. Um, I would also add that sometimes it's not always a selfish will to power. Um, I desire to convert people to Christianity because I care for them, not because I want power over them. And one must not assume that every single person seeking to assert their agenda over another is doing so maliciously. But uh, will to power, uh, it is there. The desire to have power over another. Uh, there is two aspects that Harrison brings out in this mix. And the first is the power of story. Um, as I've mentioned a few times, our stories have the power to change minds. Uh, research shows, for example, that adverts which tell a human interest story get better results than those um, that just uh, tell a more logical story. A human interest story elicits a chemical response in the brain. God has wired us to work through and think through stories. Why so much of the Bible a story? God has made us that way. And uh, advert advertisers know it. Um, it's why if you listen to Radio 4 and you hear Appeal for the Day, they always start with, poor Johnny will never walk again. Okay? It's become formulaic, but it is uh, instinctive. We need a story. Every human culture in history has told stories and stories have power. They have the capacity to influence and change minds because they engage and elicit a response. How do I feel about this story? How do I reflect and change as a result of this story? Now, those with the will to power, therefore, the desire to have power over another, will seek to influence and change your story so it becomes more in line with their story their version of the world. Stand-up comedians know how to tell a story. 
how to elicit a response. Gay campaigners know how to tell a story and elicit a response. And you find yourself saying, yeah, I sympathize. I believe that now. Powerful stories elicit empathy. And they do that on an emotional, not a rational level. Second, the power of opinion leaders. Harrison brings out the thinking of a guy called Peter Berger. Um, you may have heard about his plausibility structures. And this ties in nicely with the thinking of both Nietzsche and Marx. You've got people with a will to power, people who desire to change minds with their narratives, and then you bring in a societal structure that allows certain people's stories to succeed and certain other people with their stories not to succeed. And the result is society will allow certain people to change minds and silence others. The result is some people are allowed into the public domain and some people are not. If the Archbishop of Canterbury tells you to have faith in God and then ex-pop star TV personally Brian Cox and his magical teeth tell you not to have faith in God, who do you listen to? I'm a Christian and I want to listen to Brian Cox. His hair is better. <laughs> he's younger. He's popular. He's got those teeth. Even I want to listen to the atheist. Yeah, but you've got that hat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he's a scientist. Everything about Brian Cox is plausible. Everything about Justin Welby, apart from the fact that he used to be in a big company, is implausible. Now match that with a great story. Justin Welby does not have a great story. He could have. He doesn't. Um, not often. Brian Cox, nice, clean, straight story. Match that, and then a society that favours one over the other, listens to one over the other, is instinctively appealed to by one story that says, do what you like, send your easily black guts out, and the other one that says, no, nah, you've got to change. You're done. So we've got radical individualism and the personal narrative with pressure to change your mind from powerful narratives from plausible people. There we are. Radical individualism. A thousand competing narratives. That leads us to the final point uh, in this little section. <coughs> Radical individualism leads to a million confused, lonely souls. Did you see this news story? Yeah. Theresa May has appointed a loneliness minister. She's on her own. Hmm? She's on her own. She on her own? Mm. Um, we'll not go into this but I think it will be worth having a look uh, in your own private time at how Japan is tackling its crisis it is incredibly lonely and its birth rate is critically low and they have very similar issues to us 
Uh, Harrison notes in his book uh, that the results of radical individualism and chasing self-actualization is devastating. The result is devastating. Statistics show that we are now more lonely, failing in our relationships, and here's the big surprise. As a population, we're having less sex now than ever before. In our sexually advanced culture, we're doing it less. Um, this emotion-led, selfish, self-absorbed story uh, that we're supposed to live by is creating people who are incredibly disillusioned with their lot, but they are very committed to it. You will have to scratch hard, but it is there. They know it's let them down, deep down inside. The problem is they listen to opinion leaders and so they're stuck with it. Uh, we associate this mindset with the millennials, uh, but it has in truth been uh, in the drinking water since the 1970s, since the sexual revolution um, and the focus on yourself. We must be true to ourselves and not change, no matter how lonely it makes us. Okay. Um, we're about to come into the final two lenses. Any, any questions? We all have a little pause. It's, there's a huge connection here with a huge sort of spiral of mental health issues. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely, not even a question. Young people who have no mental narrative, you know, with a whole generation growing up, complete mental health crisis. There's no meaning, there's no point, and uh, we'll see in a couple of others, there is incredible pressure to achieve something. Yeah. Um. Just an example from our story in the States, I think people are thinking that um, massive changes happen uh, with people's view of homosexuality because of the comedy, Modern Family, mm -hmm. which is actually very funny. Or Will and Grace, uh, yeah, you see, uh, or so uh, those Transparent. Which really yeah. have been responsible for shifting many uh, one of the early examples was, was Philadelphia, the, the movie I showed you. They actually did a test. They took us a poll. What does God think of homosexuality? Before they went into the movie, they watched the movie. After they came out, what does God think of homosexuality? Nearly universally, God had changed his mind during the movie Philadelphia. Does the disillusionment Go on. He's another Darren Scott. Canadian. No, 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 Darren Scott, David Holton. All right. Ah, yes, yes. Yeah. This last weekend, he said it's staggeringly in his book Twelve Rules of Life. Yeah. He said it's staggeringly kind of Christian in its in its undergirding, but he's the guy's not Christian himself. He says he doesn't believe in God. He suspects he might be dead. Um, but he's writing into a situation where, where particularly young men are finding meaning and purpose by what he's writing. Because um, he's, I mean, he's a clinical psychologist and he's dealt with a lot of stuff, but he's becoming very popular. Yeah. I think we might come back to that. I think there is a question about how um, this can continue, because I think taking the, the long view of history, um, you know, ID 
ideas do shift, and I think there are absolutely inherent contradictions within this philosophy. They just don't make sense. And uh, yeah, I agree, but for 300 years we've been very comfortable with them. It was, have you read any John Gray, uh, atheist philosopher, and again, this is really great criticism on the myths of progress, um, and, and basically saying that most atheists today are not really atheists, they borrow upon um, Christian theology but there is something about how in the end there is something this will all collapse in on itself so I'm not too sure I wonder whether there could be an end point to this it, it could <coughs> all collapse in I think that's massively optimistic, wow. and I'm not given to that. My doctrine of sin says uh, realism rather than pessimism or optimism. Uh, be realistic. The few are called, uh, and, and the rest is. Yeah. Um, I think we'll have one last one, and then we'll crack on. Um, when you said about being true to yourself, don't you think it's very much on personality? Whereas I was always considered as a strong person. Um, very independent person, whereas um, I know a friend of mine, she was quite different, much more could change around. Now, therefore, I, to me, being true to myself was being what I am. Um, <coughs> do you not think it depends on the person? Am I supposed to change because I married somebody and he wants me to be true? To, you know, make a mild and do what he says, which is... The, the I, I, I couldn't. So the narrative... Hmm, there's an interesting mix of uh, being true to yourself there. Um, the, the narrative that surrounds our culture is, uh, especially for children today, but it's been in our water for a long time, is to be true to yourself. It's not be true to yourself if you're worth it. Um, it's you are worth it. We just got to unlock the worthiness inside you so you can be truly who you are. Um, there is no one that needs to change. Uh, or they only need to come out of their cocoon and be the beautiful butterfly that they truly are deep down inside. And that's universal. There's... The, the irony is, though, in a world of subjective morality, everybody has a point where their, object, where their morality becomes objective. Yes, uh, because people are inconsistent. Yes. And because when you finally press, 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 they will snap and switch to another way of thinking in order to keep the show on the road. Um, David Mitchell says we are cobbled, we cobble our belief systems together and we're satisfied with the mess that we come up with. Uh, thank you. I'm going to move on. Uh, the, the next two lenses uh, bring together a bunch of things. Uh, Lens number four, I'm going to call it affluenza, um, after uh, something a guy called Oliver James uh, published a book on this called Affluenza. It's a heady mix, and here's our little picture, there's affluenza. Don't you envy them? Don't they look, uh, it's better on my computer screen because their true radiant shininess comes out of a, a decent screen, but don't they look happy, successful? Each of them, their own private jets. Everything in their life is perfect. Um, <clears throat> this is a familiar existentialism uh, for us. It's a narrative that says the person next to you does not have the same gaping hole in their existence because they've got something you don't have. They've got money. They've got fame. 
and they've got, ha- they've got more fun than you. Uh, Oliver James calls it affluenza, a way of medicating our misery. Um, it's not a way of avoiding the questions of life. It's a way of providing an answer to the questions of life. It's not nihilism. It is existentialism. The true meaning of life is accumulation. Uh, the trinkets in my treasure chest, the adoration of my public, they are what make my life worth uh, living. Uh, my girls were subjected to um, a, a boy who'd been at their school, and he was now, uh, so he said, uh, shortlisted for those who would be the first astronauts going to Mars. This is supposed to be motivational. Hey, kids, you too, if you get the right grades, you too could go on a one-way mission to your certain death on another planet. That was, that was motivating. His reason for going on a suicide trip was his name would be remembered. Those were the trinkets in his chest. That was the meaning to his life. Uh, Furthermore, this promise, this affluenza, is established by exactly the same plausibility structures that influence uh, my own selfish quest for self-discovery. Opinion leaders are famous, good-looking, rich, living the good life. They tell me, this is how you too can live like me. Whether it's Tom Cruise or Joel Osteen, you look up to them and you say, that's where I want. You know they go to the best parties, don't they? Uh, never mind that for facts. Uh, never mind the fact that for decades they've been doing the equivalent of the Facebook feed. They don't go on the carpet, the red carpet, after a family fight. They never admit, or very rarely admit, on uh, Graham Norton that their life is empty. Uh, The only time that they admit their life is empty when they appear on the news having committed suicide because it was all a sham. (coughs) Uh, You may know the statistics that point out that people who do not have a faith score more highly on materialistic values such as wanting money and prestige. They drink more, they smoke more and they score more highly for depression and eating disorders. One of my favourite studies in this area was done a few years back. They asked the world's very richest, those with $100 million or more, how much more money would you need before you were really secure? And it didn't matter if they had $100 million or $10 billion. They all said roughly 10% more. Then they could relax. (laughs) Imagine you've got $10 billion dollars But you're so wedded to the idea money will save you. You say, if only I had another 10%, that would really crack it. 11 billion. Yeah, that's that's enough. A more recent Harvard study among people with only 10 million poor souls uh, found that they expected they would be truly happy once they'd grown their fortune by 1,000%. They already had 10 million. But actually, if, if they get another... 100 million, life will be much better.
The narrative of envy means there'll always be someone better off. And it's a, ver a very difficult story to debunk because it appeals to something basic within us, avarice. And here's the final lens. And we're back to nihilism. You see that? Chiastic? Uh, okay. Uh, nihilism. And uh, this is ataraxia. I've called ataraxia self-medication on the road to nothingness. Um, ataraxia um, was the great quest of the Epicurean philosophers in Acts 17. The quest for peace. And ataraxia was achieved uh, in Paul's time uh, through philosophy and being content with your situation, your friends and your family. It was a quest for contentment, peace, ataraxia. The new ataraxia is not achieved through elevating your mind and being content with a simple life. It is achieved by blocking out the sand of your own impending doom and great gaping hole in your life. Uh, and it's done through various means. Uh, one commentator watching the first episode of the new Grand Tour season on Amazon noted exactly this. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how many of you saw it. Uh, hopefully the clip... Uh, that was Richard Hammond having his second nearly fatal crash in a $2 million electric car. Uh, a commentator noted what happened in the programme. Now everyone knows this is what's coming because they all know Richard Hammond had a crash in the RIMAC Concept 1 2 million electric car. And he barely escaped with his life. And so we have a whole episode where he's in the car that's going to nearly kill him. And then we watch the footage where he nearly dies. And the commentator noticed uh, that after crossing the finish line and losing the back end, he goes over the hill, tumbles over and bursts into flames. There's no music, there's no clapping. There's just the sound of fire engines, an air ambulance comes down. He's stretched out, his limp body is stretched out. Uh, the scene cuts back to the studio. There's the three of them watching the footage of Richard Hammond nearly dying and being cr critically injured. The audience is utterly silent, shocked actually. And James May says, right, I've got the lap times. Now, the audience at this point doesn't quite know what to do. Some of them start sniggering. And they don't know quite what to do until Richard Hammond starts making mock horror faces. And then they start laughing. Finally, Richard says, uh, as he's going through the lap times, he says, I'm all right, thanks for asking. Uh, and everyone starts laughing. And that's when the two presenters launch into him. Richard, uh, Richard, when was the last time you went home not in an air ambulance? <laughs> um, and then, uh, well, we've established nothing about the supercars, but we have established, Richard, you can't drive in a straight line or go around a corner. <laughs> that is the answer to death and life. Have a laugh doesn't mean anything. So laugh about it. 
Uh, you may remember uh, Douglas Adams did exactly the same thing. Writer of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he was an atheist. Many times in his books, uh, he notes the absolute absurdity uh, of life and its pointlessness, and he mocks it. Most people know the joke. What is the answer to life, the universe, and everything? It's 42. Do you know why it's 42? Because it's on your bench? No, no, no. <laughs> it's because 6 times 7. Okay? They build a supercomputer called the Earth to find out the question behind the answer. Why is life, the universe, and everything 42? And the answer is, for, uh, it's 42 because 6 times 7. Life is a meaningless, pointless joke. And to which Ford Prefect uh, remarks, I always knew there was something fundamentally wrong with the universe. Why is this important for us? Brits are globally famous for smothering everything in sarcasm and humour and multiple layers of irony. We avoid uh, meaning through humour. You're desperate for me to tell a joke now, aren't you? It's just in us. We can't stay serious for very long at all. Uh, we also avoid the lack of meaning through entertainment. It's not that we're not aware of meaninglessness. It's that we choose to ignore it. We smother our, our lives in entertainment. Uh, where I live, it's conspicuous. I can walk down any street at any time of day and I will find people in their front rooms watching TV. Just sat down. The UK has the fourth largest TV industry after Japan. But our population is half the size of Japan. We shouldn't even be close. Within Europe, we've got one of the highest entertainment spends per head of population. And we spend more on entertainment, trips out, TV and mobile phones, than on food, health, clothes and education all put together. Let me say that again. We spend more on entertainment than food, clothes, health and education put together. Uh, Neil Postman, in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, said that the medium you use dictates the message it can carry. If you want a thoughtful, rational dialogue, you need the printed uh, media, uh, the printed page, or, or a conversation. All that TV can do, he, could ar he argued, was entertain and stupefy. Now, I think he maybe overplays his hand. Um, I think there's more rational content in a BBC4 documentary than in Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. But you get the point. In general, he has a point. TV is less about rational thought than it is about guts, feelings, elicited by story. It bypasses the critical faculties. It goes straight for the strings and into the heart. The internet age, therefore, promises even worse. Uh, you'll have seen the headlines. You'll be aware of Facebook's deliberately uh, addictive quality, uh, which reminds me, I haven't checked my status recently. Um, you'll know that it's all about virtue signaling and uh, groupthink. 
you'll know that attention spans are dropping, depression and social anxiety are on the increase, and you'll know the phenomenal amount of porn is best understood as a tidal wave, which is reprogramming uh, psyches. So I think Neil Postman has a point, especially in the digital age. Uh, we've got a generation which is uh, addicted and drugged up to the eyeballs uh, in blue light banality. When they're not busy exploring their gender or being true to themselves, they will be incredibly distracted uh, by their little right-hand device. And this is how our culture just uh, drowns out the noise and encourages non-thinking. Here's another area you will find your people not thinking, experience. Just before Christmas, retailers are, were worried about falling sales because we've reached a stage in our national wealth where we've bought most things, they're not breaking, and our houses are full. They're saying that people are beginning to stop buying physical gifts and they're now spending more and more on experiences. Now, you might think this qualifies under affluenza, but I think when I listen to my folk about experiences, you do this because YOLO. You only live once. you got to squeeze it in now. It's about distraction. Their life is summarised at the end. How many eulogies have you had where their life was summarised by where they went on holiday? That was the meaning. And it, it just, you didn't need to tackle what life was about because you went places. Once-in-a-lifetime holidays seem to be more than once-in-a-lifetime. Do you notice that? My parents have been on several once-in-a-lifetime, we'll-never-do-this-again holidays. It frequently forms the bulk of eulogies. Next, alcohol and drug use. Um, Oliver James says uh, in his book, Affluenza, um, that alcohol and drug use is associated with disillusioned materialistic mindsets. And alcohol and cannabis use is, uh, is on the increase. Uh, finally, um, I want to come back to that article that uh, I gave you. And with that, we managed to close. Uh, it's uh, by David Mitchell. With the shocking news that our culture is the first to ditch any agreed narrative. Right. I want you for a moment to ignore whether or not you agree or disagree with him, whether there's an agreed narrative. What I want you to look at is his reaction to it. The quote at the bottom summarizes the SU. His reaction is to admit he hasn't bothered thinking about it. He's cobbled together something like an amateur. He says we ignore, as a culture, we ignore those professional uh, ponderers. He means clergy. Those who have thought about why am I here, what am I here for. We ignore them and we cobble something together instead. 
He says it's amateurish. It's not even a solid attempt at a good answer. But he says such an attitude uh, leads to vacuous assertions of being spiritual. And then he admits, and I'm satisfied with that. Uh, there's a clip that's doing the rounds on YouTube. I'm hoping I've got it here. Yes, I do. Good. Let's One listen. of the reasons I want to is the respect you normally the respect what you've done, and the depth, breadth of knowledge that you have, and the way that you conveyed it is awesome. But I know that as a man of science, that you are I sort of famously atheistic. Is that right? Well, no. No, I don't think so. I mean, first of all, I reject the label because I think that it's divisive. Mm. And uh, so I genuinely think that science does not rule out the existence of a creator uh, by, by definition because we don't know how the universe began, full stop. Mm. That's it. We don't know. Right? We, we have a, a theory of what might have happened before the Big Bang, a theory called inflation, which says that the universe was still around but doing something else. But we still left with the question, how did that start? How did the universe have a beginning? And if so, how did it begin? The answer is we don't know, full stop. Mm. So you can't read it. So, so, so from a, the scientific perspective, it is wrong to say that science has anything to say at all about the, 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 the nature of a, of a creator. Or the, 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 the can be, the, because we don't know. That's, yes. Now, all I say is that I don't personally have any faith. I don't have personal faith. Now, uh, well, yeah, faith, do you mean faith as in pre-existing ideological structure that you used as a framework for your understanding of reality, or do you mean faith as sort of an inward belief that there is beauty? Because when you said that humility and all that, that sounded like a faith. Well, yeah. So, so it, I suppose it depends, and you, you could talk about this more actually. How, how you define the word? I mean, to me, all I mean when I say that is I don't have a, a, a religion that I adhere to. I don't. Um, I, I do not know what the origin of the laws of nature is. And, and that's enough for me. Yeah. I, I don't really, I, I, don't, I don't feel compelled. I, I'd love to know, but I don't feel compelled to go further than the statement that I don't know. And I think that's, that's in one of my books. It's one of the... just want to stop there. Did you spot that? I do not know what the origins of the law of nature are, but I don't need to. It's enough for me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. In other words, I don't know how we got here, and I don't want to know how we got here, and I'm okay with that. Let's move on. A professor of science, a famous humanist, an advocate against religion, admits he cannot be bothered to think about why we're here. Ataraxia, I just want a peaceful life. Don't bother me. And that brings me to Romans chapter 1. I want you to look at it um, as a way of finishing off. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Um, my contention is we don't live in Athens with people desperate for answers saying, tell us about this unknown God. I think we live in Corinth or Lystra with people content with garbage answers because it means they can keep living the way they want to. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God had shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. In summary, friends, the UK is a tangled mess of various answers to the commonly held belief we got here by accident, have no reason to be here, and soon won't be any longer. Let me repeat it. It is in the sheets, but I think it's a fair summary. The UK is a tangled mess of various answers to the commonly held belief we got here by accident, have no reason to be here, and soon won't be any longer. Right, what does that mean for evangelism and discipleship? It means this. Your non-Christians will be status-obsessed, individualistic, utterly broken, depressed, aimless, and have a high threshold for narratives that conflict with any of that mess of gut reactions that they live by. Your non-Christians will be status-obsessed, individualistic, broken, depressed, aimless, and have a high threshold for narratives that conflict with the mess of gut reactions they live by, and the Christians in your church will be broadly the same. Okay, that's it. Um, In the seminar, I'll be asking questions about whether any of those lenses help with our evangelism or our uh, discipleship. Do you want to take questions of clarification, five to ten? And feel free to shut the discussion down if you want to save it for later. Do you want to do Can, that? Yeah, go, go on then. Uh, five to ten. Five to ten, and then we'll, um, then we'll sing to finish. Great. Five to ten minutes. Uh, my Don't co- worry, lunch is not till one o'clock. <laughs> Good. Um, okay, we'll take questions. Uh, the question I might leave you with for the afternoon would be, In Corinth, Paul was expected to be like the sophists. He was expected to be as impressive as them, as clever as them, and speak like them and be paid like them. Question one, did he? Question two, if Paul was with us now and he knew about our sophists, our stand-up comedians and scientists, would he be like them or preach like them? I'll let you muse uh, over that over lunch. Uh, Let's take uh, questions of clarification first. Yeah, that's uh, George Lucas was heavily into his Eastern uh, philosophy when he did the first one. Yeah, and he ripped off an Indian story. Um, this, this, the, the reason he uses two robots is because he's copying an Indian film which tells the story through two slaves. So yeah, yeah. Um, was there any follow up? Well, the follow up I think is that because we. We've grown up in a Christian, uh, uh, th- that is our roots in history. Um, it's hard to take on board you, if, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you have an Eastern side of things, uh, you can see the, because it's all nihilist anyway, and there are no, there, there are no absolutes. It's, um, we've just taken, we, we, we've just let this come crowding in without um, 
Yeah, without question. Uh, the, the, the second writer, I mean, honestly, the other comment I'd like to say is that, is that it's quite striking how Paul speaks to people who don't have um, and don't have a Bible background. And in both cases, he starts with creation. And he's not afraid to talk about, you know, from one man. In Athens. Anyway, just... Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think we recognise the complete brokenness of things. And people themselves are beginning to recognise it. But why is... Um, the option of pursuing the Christian uh, Christianity or other religions, even as an option, so often ruled out of court, even before you start. So you, in a sort of plural, multi-view, multi-authority, you, you would expect, again, logically maybe, that at least different possible answers to nihilism are on the table, including religion. But it seems that religion is off the table, everything else is on. I think you've got both a biblical answer and a cultural, uh, sociological answer. I think when it comes to a sociological answer, even when you've got folks like David Mitchell who says, I don't want to say I'm an atheist, I'm not ready to do that yet, you can still taste, if I come to Christianity, it won't be C of E. It's anti-authoritarian. Um, so I think Christianity is off the table because... That's what we're rebelling against. I mean, so, so many famous people, Kabbalah Buddhism, or Buddhism, or anything except Christianity. It's because that's what we're rebelling against. That's the cultural, sociological one. I think biblically, why, why, do they, why would they rather be a, a Muslim than a Christian? because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and people are blinded to it. Um, yeah, it, it is disappointing that it's ruled off the table. So how to explain why you see this blossoming of post-denominational churches? I, uh, quite possibly, yes. Um, then and then? Yes, um, well, how you describe Britain is obviously very right, and in my lifetime I've seen it develop. When I was younger, I found it harder if I said I was a Christian, much more against me. Whereas now, oh, well, you're a Christian, and well, that's it, and something, something else. But it actually, are, are we in where we are now? Are we peculiar in that way? Or are other countries, particularly <coughs> European, not that way? So in Europe, so uh, if you... Some people would argue that we are the vanguard of a European secular project. Um, so other people are experiencing what we're experiencing. I think culturally, I'm tempted to look to Japan um, and then in some respects looking to America. Uh, in some respects they're behind us, in some respects they're ahead. Uh, yeah, sorry, there was Ros first. Yeah, just to say, I don't think religion per se is off the table. I think you're right that, that Christianity is off the table, and particularly uh, where it's seen as associated with establishment and authority. But I think that, you know, <coughs> I like to think of God as is, is absolutely on the table. And I think one of the things that's really interesting in, in uh, the David Mitchell article that you give us is this sense of 
you know, it would, it sort of almost, it would be nice to be a Christian, but that would be squandering the freedom oh, that yes. I have. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we've got this sort of freedom, and therefore we somehow ought to make up our own religion, otherwise, but, you know. But even he spots the quandary, because he's a smart guy, there are professionals that do this for a living. Yes. But I don't know if I want to listen to no, them. No, and also later on, that thing of, you know, if I'd been brought up in Victorian England and people had confidently given me answers to questions like, is there a God and what happens when I die, that would have been really great, actually. But, there is something and at the same time, Victorian England. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but obviously we can't, you know, but, it, but wouldn't it be great if, and so I think that there is that... I wish I had your faith. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, if that works for you, that's great. It is still very much um, on the yeah. table. Yeah, religion's on the table, just not ours. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I just, so I don't cry myself through lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my world. I'm just, I'm just encouraged that it is... The Missio Dei continues in post-Christian Britain. Yeah. I'm just remembering the telos and the, the narrative arc. and That's how I'm going to get through. Did, yeah, absolutely. I mean, did, oh, Paul went to Corinth. There was a church in Corinth. It was a mess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah God, God is still sovereign. I mean, he's sovereign over the mess here, but we're called to do the work while we're at it. I come from a non-Christian home. My parents never went to church, never did anything at all. When I was eight years old, my schoolmate died suddenly of leukemia. I panicked. I started to pray. And as a result of that, later on, I started to ask God if he existed. Is it partly because we're living in an environment which has been so peaceable, so comfortable, so quiet, so unpanicky, so cosseted for 50, 60, 70 years, that you need a tragedy bring people to that sort of... What's the purpose of the I mean, that's, that is a... What on earth am I doing? That is a tempting... Uh, that is a tempting analysis. I wonder if it's entirely fair, given how many terrorist incidents we've now had, okay. that life is now very fragile. Right? It feels... It's all blown out of proportion. The numbers that die on the roads on a regular basis weigh, outweigh any terrorist incident. Nevertheless, we're back into a kind of Cold War mentality, a very panicked, very it could be over at any moment kind of mentality. And yet we're still so distracted. I, I know there's, there's no atheist in a trench. Um, and yet at the same time, there seems to be a denial about things as well. I think there's some validity in that, but I think it's part of a mix. Yeah.